0: This is Mouth Media Network covering the business of lifestyle. Six months ago, we unleashed an economic miracle by signing the biggest tax cut and set of reforms, President Donald Trump said earlier this summer. Politically, a lot rides on perceptions of economic performance. Incumbents and presidencies are almost always re-elected if they have strong economies and they are frequently defeated if there are weak ones. If the president has unleashed an economic miracle, as he says, that's a really powerful argument for his re-election and for Republicans in general. If the good economic news is a mirage or if Trump is simply riding on another administration's policy coattails, then his sole claim to success sort of evaporates. So which is it? Let's actually begin with the data. In November of 2018, employers added about 155,000 additional jobs to the US economy, and the unemployment rate held steady at about 3.7%. For the first time on record, there are actually more jobs open than there are job seekers. And according to Gallup, 65% of Americans believe this is a good time to find a quality job, among the highest readings that that poll has recorded since they even began asking the question in 2002. But that cheerful economic news is largely absent for many American workers' paychecks average hourly wage growth has been around 2.7% over the past year. And even though that has the word growth attached to it, it's actually kind of anemic given the power and length of the economic expansion, expansion happening in the rest of the economy. In November, for example, Private sector workers, excluding those that work on farms, actually got an average $0.06 hourly raise, adding up to an average hourly pay of about 27 and $0.35. That was lower than economists expected and reflects the same slow wage growth that has plagued the economy in recent years. In the past year, for example, average earnings have only increased $0.81, or 3.1%, and that doesn't even take inflation into account making matters worse. A surge of inflation driven by higher oil prices has clawed back a lot of wage gains, as David Leonhardt documents at the New York Times. And frustration over stagnant wages is the underlying factor behind widespread workers' strikes across this country. And additional taxation, which eats into workers' wages, is actually taking shape right now in France, as many turn out to strike their economy as well. So, With Congressional Republicans promising that their statements and their economy would help the average worker, but with gains on record being meager, what's happening with this very notion of the American dream? If it's still a working notion of working hard, putting food on the table, and leaving your children a little better off than you were, is that central aspirational vision core to the way Americans live and earn, or does it feel out of grasp? Joining today's podcast is Rachel Snyder, currently the Omidyar Network Entrepreneur-in-Residence at the Aspen Institute's Financial Security Program. Rachel is also the co-author of the incredible book, The Financial Diaries, How American Families Cope in a World of Uncertainty. Not only has she particularly tracked families in the way they spend and the way different financial circumstances impact their spending, but she's also spent a lot of time researching and implementing programs and experiments that weigh how small strategic cash infusions can actually go a long way in helping families at pivotal moments in which they simply don't have the cash on hand to spend for what they need. Perhaps most importantly, Rachel is also an alum of UC Berkeley, so go Bears.
1: This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer.
0: Rachel, thanks so much for joining American Enough.
1: Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm glad to have this conversation.
0: Absolutely. And and I think I, I wanted to start with that overview of the numbers that our economy has seen recently—not to be overly wonky or specific about it—but um, we've sort of seen this one top-line trend that a lot of people are claiming the economy has been roaring back since the, the you know, the, the recovery of the downturn in around 2008, 2009. And yet, a lot of people point to wages as a indicator that maybe the economy isn't working for all. Um, you, however, with your co-author in the Financial Diaries, Jonathan Murdoch, actually spent some time tracking families. I believe it was around 235 low and middle income families as they navigated a single year and actually found out how prosperity either seemed in reach or out of reach, totally irrespective of this monthly cattle call of economic numbers and data that we, we tend to blast on headline news. Is there anything that you learned in tracking those families that actually speaks to why this notion of wages feels out of reach or why this notion of American prosperity feels out of reach for so many Americans despite an economic boom?
1: Yeah, so much. I mean, so as you said, we we spent about a year with several hundred families, and the families were all across the U.S. They were in Mississippi, they were in Kentucky, they were in New York, they were in California, and they represented a whole bunch of different ways of living, um, right? Urban, rural, suburban, uh, some were immigrants, some were families who had been in our country for generations. The one thing that they all had in common was that all of the families had people in the household who were working. So this was a snapshot of working Americans. And um, our, our biggest takeaway really was that the economic indicators that we all track about the financial health and well-being of American workers are simply insufficient. So these were all families who were working, but they were still experiencing meaningful financial insecurity And that insecurity was being driven by a number of things. One, the fact that, you know, as you point out, wages are not growing um, to keep up with increases in the cost of living. But also, wages are often quite volatile for people. So we saw an extraordinary span between the highs and lows of people's paychecks over the course of a year. So and and it really the level of volatility really throws all of our assumptions about budgeting and saving and borrowing out the window because what we saw was not people who earn the same amount week over week over week and can therefore you know set a budget and then follow that budget what we saw was people who paychecks in on average in 5 months of the year their paycheck would be um so far away from the average that it was plus or you know outside the range of plus or minus 25% and really more likely those those were up or down 50% from their average pay and so that level of volatility in earnings and then a similar level of volatility in spending means that people feel a huge amount of pressure week after week about whether or not they'll have the money on hand for this week's bill and none of our economic indicators really do a good job of tracking that. And so we look at the job growth and we say, well, the job market's robust. We wonder why wages aren't going up, but we completely miss the fact that um, even people who are employed just don't feel confident that they can pay next week's bills. And that seeps into their feelings of of confidence and optimism for the long term as well,
0: and and how important is it to? Um make sure that those financial indicators are accurately reflecting that. Um, are, are you suggesting that, and maybe this is a little bit of a naive question, but are you suggesting that it's not targeted enough because we don't have a firm sense of the American mood and the American sentiment, or do you think it, it actually has material impacts in the way that we, we spend and have confidence in our economy um, and the policies that are enacted by lawmakers if we don't have those hyper-targeted um, metrics around American prosperity?
1: That's a great question. You know, I've thought about it um more in the former, but the latter is absolutely true. So for example, and I don't I don't want to throw this particular pundit under the bus, but when I was listening to um to political reporters talk about the midterm elections, I you heard people say things like these um they, they putting you hear people putting the election results in the context of economic findings, right? And so I heard one pundit talking about how the midterm elections results were actually pretty surprising because when the economy is this good, you don't usually see the party in power lose as many seats. And then he said, as data, his data point that the economy is this good. Look at the unemployment rate. And then he said, as an aside, you know, you can have a an argument about how we distribute the economic growth, but we are having economic growth. And I think that's that kind of statement is typical or we think we understand what's happening in our country. And you could you know, could think it back to Trump's election and it felt so surprising to some people um, because they didn't realize the level of economic dislocation that people were experiencing and their frustration about it. And that's because our typical economic indicators don't pick this up. They don't pick up the fact that um, even people who are, un- who are employed, do not feel confident that they can pay their bills on time. So one um, one move in the right direction is the organization that I worked for while I was doing the financial diaries called the Center for Financial Services Innovation has a new research study out called the Financial Health Pulse, Pulse um, U.S. Financial Health Pulse. And so on a regular basis, they'll be going out and asking questions that I think get more to the heart of whether or not people feel confident in their economic lives. So they just put out the first baseline study. And what they found was a third of Americans, more than a third, 36%, report that they are unable to pay all of their bills on time. So that's a really important indicator. Um, right, uh, and that means a third of Americans every month sit there and think about, do I pay my rent or my utilities first? And but that's Wearing on you, so I definitely think you know we're we're missing something really meaningful in understanding our fellow citizens, but I also think it has policy implications because if you miss this so um, for the most part, when we think about and this is a gross overstatement, but for the most part, when we think about federal policy to help people achieve their economic goals, we think about tax subsidies for buying homes, for saving for retirement, and now increasingly helping people to afford health care. Those three things are all big long-term things. None of those things deal with the, hey, can you pay this week's bill? And yet, when you talk to people, which we did in the diaries, and say, are you saving for retirement? Are you saving for a home? What they say is, I know I should, but I got to pay my rent that's what's right. Um, And so like the the implication for policy to me is we should be doing a lot more to help people with their near-term financial ups and downs. And if you do that, you're going to facilitate those long-term objectives around um, saving for retirement, buying homes, investing in businesses. But to think you can do one without the other is just pretty unrealistic.
0: Yeah, I mean that that makes complete sense especially because um that sense of a false trade-off or a false um you know promise between or not promise but rather that that, that the choice between you know putting food on the table or paying for your prescription drugs or paying the utilities or paying the rent, um, that these items that are both key to your livelihood that seem mutually exclusive can also result in some pretty bad personal spends and expenditures and habits. Um, Things like, you know, not only running up debt by going to family and friends, but maybe even going to a payday lender or a very high interest predatory loan lender. Um, and, And that can end up creating more fiscal and financial damage, not just for an individual or their household, um, but that debt incurred within the broader society can also kind of create stagnation with the economy. And, you know, I want to come back to the policy conversation in a second, but, but I am curious, how you saw those habits play out in real time in tracking some of these families. I'm sure no two families or individuals were exactly alike, but were there any common threads of when someone was faced with that challenge of having to pay for X bill versus Y bill, or maybe not even being able to pay for anything at all? Um, what did, What were some salient takeaways uh, that you observed how people end up acting uh, or behaving with whatever amount they have in their checking or savings account when they are in that pinch.
1: Yeah, you know, the you're right that there's a lot of variation, but the common thread is that people are incredibly resourceful and have creative and admirable strategies for how to manage this, and I think it's easy to forget that we can get really critical about really, and and we can assign a lot of blame when we see people struggling with their finances. But we, and and certainly we saw behaviors that weren't perfect, Um, but mostly and often we saw people who really were thinking hard and being really resourceful about how to manage their money. So for example, um, one woman in Ohio who we worked with, she knew that it was really hard for her to save in cash. You know, she had a bank account, but she just found it really hard to save money there because there's, it's tempting to then spend it on things that she doesn't need. So what she did was she would stock up her freezer and stock up her pantry when there was a good deal on something or when her husband had a particularly good paycheck. And that way, she, she was essentially saving by buying in bulk. And that way she knew she could always put it put on the table. So it really helped ease her mind. Um, but she also knew that she was positioning herself to make her best possible decisions. And we saw lots of th- tricks like that, kind sort of hacks, works around in the system. So another um, of the research participants who lived in New York would save with his mom. We called it the Bank of mom. So he would give his mom the savings and she would put it in her bank account, right? Instead of putting it in his own bank account. Then he said, my mom is like Fort Knox. Like I cannot get that money out unless it's I really need it, right? And so it just created a barrier for himself. We saw so many different versions of the bank of mom. There's the bank of far away, or you put your money in a credit union that's an hour's drive away and has that out into hour's. Um, so, so many really interesting strategies that people employ.
0: I mean, the, the, that is an incredible takeaway and one that I certainly don't want to gloss over because it seems that oftentimes when you listen to um, our elected officials, you know, in many respects, they are uh, part of their responsibility is to be a cheerleader of the American economy. That's why you, you have word choice, like we heard at the top of our conversation from President Trump about the economy being a miracle, for example. Um, at the same time, they're, they're not just a cheerleader for the, the overall market. They're also a cheerleader for the individual. American worker. And I think that sense of hope and grit and resilience um, that Americans will figure it out, that will build things, that will continue to you know um, chart better paths and, and better pastures um, is something that we heard a lot, um, not just with this presidency, but um, with the last presidency in terms of what Americans are made of. And it's interesting to hear you say that and, and realize that where even if people are in financial dire straits, um, they still find a way to push through. But there are some levers um, out there that might make it easier for uh, Americans to live and work, um, and to not feel those tight squeezes that you discovered by following all of those families in your book. Um, and some of those uh, levers you, you've spoken about um, and uh, researched and experimented with in a in quite a remarkable way. And, and one of those levers um, is actually taking a look at short-term strategic cash infusions. Um, and I guess maybe to frame this, um, you and, and uh, a few others, um, including a, Dr. Rojas at the Workers Lab, um, have actually penned some interesting um, papers and and, and op-eds around how in America, a lot of people don't have the ability to access a medical expense or deal with the unexpected expense overnight. And so maybe one way to deal with that is to infuse their pocketbooks or their bank accounts with a short-term strategic cash infusion. Um, This would be separate than the sort of every two-week paycheck that many Americans who are fortunate to have a job are accustomed to. And this would be almost an overnight emergency pool of money that they can then spend appropriately to you know, to buoy their prospects um, for whatever they need at that time. Can you talk us through a little bit as to why you arrived at short-term cash infusions as being a possible um, fix or, or a way to address um, this notion of American prosperity and sort of what some of the experiments you've run and what you've learned in trying trying to suss that overall concept out?
1: Sure. Um, so for me, the idea of strategic cash infusions really comes from a combination of two two conceptual threads. One is that, as we've already talked about, like people really are um, short on cash in a meaningful way. And the research you're talking about from the Fed, this number has been reported over and over that... Um, Half of Americans can't easily pay for a four hundred dollar expense um, is really important um, and at the same time um i don't I don't personally believe that if we just purely raise wa- raised wages, we would fully solve the problem because not all money is equal um, sometimes even if somebody is earning more, they may find themselves short for some important reason so for example, yesterday. As part of um, research that I've been doing with the Aspen Institute and with Commonwealth, um, I was part of an interview where we were talking with somebody who had received a strategic cash infusion from his employer. And what happened for him is this was a software engineer. So he was certainly a middle income person. Um, But a bunch of things happened for him at once. He was um, about to close on his first home purchase. And he had accumulated money to pay for the down payment, but had also already put down a deposit. And then at the same time, his mother-in-law died and was suddenly really ill and was about to die in his home country this is an immigrant. And so it became, for him in that moment, it was a choice between flying home to see his family in this really critical moment and using... If he did that, he would have to use the money he'd accumulated for his down payment and not be able to close on his house, and he'd lose his deposit. So those were his two choices. Um, His third choice was to borrow in a high-priced way because he didn't have access to more credit that would be at a reasonable cost. So none of those choices were good choices. And he wasn't in this position because he hadn't saved. He, in fact, had saved. He wasn't in this position because he was living at the edge of his means. He was talking about how he needed The reason he was so excited to buy his first home was that he and his extended family were living in a two bedroom apartment and it was just really stressful for all of them. Um, So it wasn't it's not that he was living large. Right. And therefore had didn't have any money. He was just in the normal course of life um, in a very tough moment. And luckily for him, his employer has a program where if you find yourself in that kind of position, you can apply for a cash grant. And the money to support those cash grants has been raised from employees and from the employer, and is there waiting for moments like this. And what he said was so powerful. He said, um, he said this, the fact that I could apply for and receive this grant made me feel like somebody had my back. He said, um, I. He also said was which is important for employers, that he was highly unlikely to leave this job because he now felt so loyal to his employer for having helped him in this moment. And he said, you know, this was an incredibly stressful time. And I, he didn't use the word knowledge worker, but he said, I do, a, I do work that requires me to come to work able to think and think hard. And I manage people and my work is stressful. And the fact that I could access this money enabled me to keep doing that work and doing that work well. Um, so, you know, when I talk about strategic cash infusions, I'm thinking about that scenario. I'm thinking about, um, the fact that our society has really become quite atomized. If we don't, you know, we asked him, what would you have done if you couldn't get this money from your employer? And he said, well, if I was part of a religious community, maybe I would have gotten this same help from them. If I was part of, you know, he immediately went to this idea of community, like, you you would get this kind of help from your friends and family, or from your religious community, or from some network you're a part of. And our society is increasingly atomized, and so it's important that we recreate ways where people feel like somebody has their back.
0: And and is that sense of of somebody having their back going to take shape? Uh, among the, the the sort of the government sector itself, uh, should we be expected um, as we continue to learn more about how these cash infusions can actually help um, different American families or different individuals? I imagine that part of your research is um, uh, is to inform broader policy making maybe it's at the the national level maybe it's at the local level and i'm just curious if you could tell us a little bit about how um, any experimentation you've done so far or that you expected do in the future um, how it kind of reconciles the role of the private sector whether it's you know maybe my employer or maybe it's a local bank versus the public sector in terms of you know congress or, or state governments enacting laws that make this kind of infusion of capital a little bit more of a reality. Uh, is there a role for one versus the other, or do you see this as a bit of a public private partnership?
1: I, I see it as um, yes and to all of that. I think that, um, so you, I know that um, Dr. Carmen Rojas from the Workers Lab was also a guest on your podcast, and you may have spoken with her about the design sprint that her organization is leading. And in that work, we are really experimenting with this idea um, with. Um, workers who are both gig and some are W-2 workers. And we really do see that work as having policy implications. And so what we're doing is making a cash infusion, like the one I've described, available to a group of workers in 2019, and then tracking the impacts for them. Because while this practice is quite common throughout our society, it's not very well understood or measured. So You know, I spoke about a cash infusion being delivered by an employer, but universities and colleges are increasingly doing this because they see that the main reason, the biggest reason that students fail to graduate is some financial upset. So they're experimenting with programs like this. Um, Housing authorities are experimenting with programs like this. Social service agencies have always done it. So there's a role for all those kinds of institutions but this practice is not very well measured or understood, and without understanding the return on investment, if you will, what the real impact is, it's hard to understand how much we should invest in it so the The design sprint is going to give us some really useful data about impact and what happens in people's lives that will help us to make the policy case because I think you could you could make some relatively straightforward changes to the ITC, for example, to accomplish exactly what I'm describing. If you, if you said... You, you're, so right of course, now, talking like, about the, the, biggest, the
0: earned income tax credit.
1: Exactly, right. So the earned income tax credit is a credit for um, low-wage workers um, that essentially um, boost their income. And the, when people get their refund in February... That is the biggest lump sum of cash that they have access to throughout the year for the most part, for people who are eligible for the i t c and so people plan around it and they rack up debt and then they pay off that debt with the e i t c or they um you know wait to make major expenditures um at the time that they get their tax refund so the The thought I had about that is why why wait until February? I mean, you don't know exactly how much your refund is going to be until you fill out your um, tax forms in January or whenever you do it. But you have a pretty good guess based on last year. And so one great policy solution to the problem I'm raising would be to say that people could access next year's refund early. Um, Maybe we set up a safe harbor and say you can access up to 40% of next year's refund anytime during the year by calling this 800 number. I don't think that's impossible. I actually think that's really viable for us to execute against. Um, but it would enable people to easily access cash or when they need it versus waiting until when it comes.
0: Yeah. And the, the, um, that that notion of waiting for cash um, in a traditional cycle um, has actually been, it, in some re- regards, a little bit of a, a argument for why um, new work models. Uh, you know, whether you are um, an entrepreneur that's able to sell um, your goods on a platform like Etsy, for example, or maybe drive uh, for a ride-sharing company like Lyft or Uber, um, or, or you know, deliver for a network platform like uh, you know Postmates or Instacart. These sort of new configurations of work aren't necessarily new in terms of, you know, their service in some respects, somebody just having their own uh, storefront, but doing it online, somebody offering you a ride somewhere, but doing it through an app, um, somebody delivering a pizza slice for you, but doing it through an app. Technology has sort of changed the way that people are able to earn and access capital. Um, but in a major way, um, that sort of low barrier to entry to work has also been the criticism of a lot of lawmakers that are thinking about policies around the same bend of what you and your colleagues have been doing, specifically saying, um that maybe stitching together all of these jobs and having to um, work for this platform while also working for for this part time job and working with that part time job is actually creating a strain on the way um, Americans work and is sort of running a, a traditional challenge to this traditional notion of a nine to five job and a forty hour work week and and i'm curious at the same time that there are these debates rearing their head about. The nature of work may be changing. Maybe it's because of these new platforms. Maybe it's because of the prospect of you know things like automation or robotics and what that means for workers. Um, the same time that that debate is playing out, there are also a lot of these policy conversations playing out in terms of exactly what you're doing and your research. Maybe we should be thinking about an expansion of that earned income tax credit. Maybe we should be thinking about um, short-term capital infusion so that way people can manage their finances with a little bit more breathing room. Um, other lawmakers, even um, you know, notable uh, potential presidential contenders like Kamala Harris, um, have actually said, "Well, maybe we should be thinking about giving people a monthly stipend of money." You know, some people refer to that as universal basic income. Um, I- I'm curious when you see all of these different policy conversations um, from your perch um, as the media Network Entrepreneur in Residence, as you've worked for Aspen, as you've sort of um, been able to experiment with traditional actors what have you seen as the appetite for experimentation and the reason i ask it that way is because these sort of some people will call these changes to the way we are living and working a threat to the traditional way of of dealing with jobs and yet a lot of the policy experimentation is trying to account for that changing jobs Um, are, are people and lawmakers and different private sector actors that you're working with open to that kind of experiment? Or is there still this American reticence or frustration to even accept the premise that work should be changing in this direction, and therefore we should be toying with or experimenting with these other policy ideas? Or are people generally open that, hey, you know what, work is changing in the 21st century, and we need to experiment in this way? What has been your sort of feedback in terms of accepting the premise of that changing nature of work and therefore trying to design solutions around it?
1: So that's a big question. I and there's not one answer. Um I what I hear often is fear is worry and that comes from all the directions you've just described, right? The people I think there would be more experimentation around how to support workers in the current way that work works. Um we'd see more experimentation if um employers and others weren't Scared that if they experiment and get it wrong, they'll be criticized. So even in the work I'm I'm describing around employers delivering strategic cash infusions, their fear is if they do a better job at that than they're doing now, if they experiment with that, if they um, publicize what they're doing, then they'll just get criticism that wages aren't higher. Um, instead of somebody engaging with them in a conversation about a, in more of a both and frame that maybe wages should be higher and maybe this is actually a really useful way to help workers. Um, so I think I think there is a a dampening of experimentation that's caused by the vitriolic nature of our public dialogue sometimes and by people being generally risk averse. Um, and I think you see that on all, all sides of this conversation. You see it from labor, you see it from employers, you see it from the platforms probably, right? You're just... Um, so I think that, unfortunately, the nature of social change is that people are weighing public response to their actions as, as you know, quite strongly when they think about what experiments to undertake. And that said, I think, and so I think what's really important is to create safe spaces for enterprises to experiment and create, um, you can do that through philanthropic funding and public research. So part of the role that I play at Aspen is to be able to raise, um, is to be able to drive interest in these issues by having a neutral third party look at them. Um, And I think that's, that's really important. I think one of the the values that, um, that one of the values that creates is creating a safe space for um, a diverse network of people to come together and talk about ideas experiment with new things
0: and and one of the um Areas of experimentation um, that we've been talking about today, uh, in terms of trying to create those short-term cash infusions, I, uh, is going to take a new form and new life in in the weeks ahead. Um, you and I were chatting earlier about um, maybe uh, working with a few institutional actors uh, to try and get this off the ground and and run those experiments like you've done um, with the with the design sprints in the past um, in a more targeted way for a larger breadth of workers. Can you talk to us a little bit about what's in store for those efforts um, in 2019?
1: Sure. So I am in the very early stages of launching a new enterprise that will experiment with strategic cash infusions, and we'll we'll do it primarily in partnership with employers. And so um, the idea is to be able to work closely with them to figure out what makes cash infusions the highest possible impact for both them and their workers. And, um, you know, I, I start there. I can't help but think that in the long run, the roadmap is been to also work with educational institutions and social service agencies because there are learnings that are cross-sector. Um, and so I'm not quite ready to announce a specific first experiment, but sure. we're close to signing um, agreements with funders and Employers to work with on developing simply the what I think of as let's develop the best-in-class version of um, strategic cash grants to workers um, delivered through employers.
0: And that's fantastic, by the way. Congratulations on on developing that and maturing this from an experimental um, kind of design think approach to actually implementing it with with a few partners on the horizon. Um, I, I am as, as you sort of um, traffic in, you know, measuring and monitoring uh, American families and the way they spend. And as you've experimented with this one um, kind of policy recommendation, you've certainly learned a lot about how if you are able to give those workers more resources, um, what will they do with, with that cash? Uh, you know, for, I don't know if you think this is a perfect example, but, um, you know, the mayor of Stockton, California, has experimented with a, a universal basic income approach to try and monitor whether uh, those allocations on a regularized basis, whether that's, you know, weekly or monthly or yearly, um, can help uh, support a family. Um, we've also sort of seen a, a different veneer, um, and maybe not perfectly analogous, but s- smells similar um, in Alaska where there are um, funds from the Strategic uh, Petroleum Reserve um, that are given out to families in the region, um, many times those families might spend it on, you know, weekly items for the household, or they may try and use the that allocation to, you know, save money for college, uh, for example. Um, when you when you start to experiment with these different approaches of prying, providing um, different families with uh, different amounts of money, um, there quickly runs into this debate that falls along perhaps traditional partisan lines, but this question around um, whether or not Americans or people will reliably spend that money. Uh, you know, in the early 90s, this was, took an, sort of an awful face in terms of uh, targeting um, young families or young mothers that might be overly reliant on public assistance programs or public welfare programs, claiming that we're sort of, you know, cheating out on the government's dime. Or more recently, um, and tied to immigration, we've seen this president actively uh, try and propose a rule called the public charge rule that would uh, almost penalize immigrants from getting a more guaranteed immigration status in this country if they do rely on public assistance programs. And I'm, I'm curious, as you zoom back and see how Americans really need uh, different forms of support and this, this incredible amount of research and work you've done to actually enact and experiment new forms of support. Um, how does this track with the broader uh, American identity of what it means to kind of work hard and pull yourself up your bootstraps versus um, this this perception, perhaps incorrect perception, but this perception that some people try and project that providing these resources is in some way kind of cheating the system or relying on the government going further in the red. Do you think that's a, a fair characterization for that debate to continue to play out? Or do you think the types of policy experimentation that you're eyeing is completely separate from those kind of, quote unquote, public assistance critiques?
1: I... I don't think it's separate, but I think those public assistance critiques are just completely missing the mark. The reality is that we all benefit from the infrastructure created by government. So we have this narrative that if you're receiving cash welfare, you must be doing something wrong. But we don't say, hey, you know, know, I think about my own life. My, My life has been fundamentally altered because of the GI Bill, right? My parents were the first in their generation, first in our families to go to college. And they were able to do that because, or they were able to do that as easily as they did because they um, really benefited from the GI Bill. So they got really cheap education. Uh, They didn't graduate with a ton of debt. And they um, were able to use every extra dollar they had to move to California and buy a house in the 70s. And then they benefited from... Um, the infrastructure around them in California, right? So, it, so in no way. And then I went to UC Berkeley, right? As you said, go Bears. Like in no way is my like I I live with a lot of ease today. I right I I really um, am grateful for that. And in no way is that not the result of government help. It is absolutely the result of government help that my life has been as smooth as as it has. And that's true for most of us. We just don't realize it, right? So, the Ford Foundation a few years ago put out this um, tool. They were hoping people would use. Or maybe I don't remember who put it out. The Ford Foundation probably supported it rather than built it themselves. Um, and it was a, essentially a, a quick survey you could do on on a website um, that was intended to make transparent to you all the ways in which government was making your life smoother. Um, and giving you a financial foundation on which to build stability and mobility and things we don't really think about. Like if you live in a safe neighborhood, um, you are experiencing far less stress because of a government investment in policing, in effective policing. And because you are living with less stress, you are able to put far more of your energy towards your work and probably succeed professionally in a different way. And so, you know, we, we somehow like see it differently when it's a poor person getting welfare, but it's really not different. It's really a matter of like what kinds of public resources does any one person need to live a life of dignity and um, equality and different people because of where they start often do need different resources, but we're all benefiting and, and, and we 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 really forget that when we get fixated on like the idea that some person is receiving some specific benefit and we fail to remember that we are receiving probably equal or greater benefits just different ones
0: that's absolutely right, and I think that um or, or uh, you you may agree or disagree, but it, it does feel like if there are these shifting um Ways in which Americans are working, or or maybe just Americans aren't necessarily able to get ahead in the same way that our our basic social compact has promised for so many generations, then it does seem that the onus is on all of us not to just to try new ways but to um, fall outside of conventional convictions about, um, you know, what different types of of resources and support look like and be a little bit more open-minded as we all try and, you know, grasp towards that American dream. Um, And I'm curious what you think, you know, kind of taking it back to the 235 families that you uh, were able to track with you and your your co-author in the book, um, if you were able to chat with some of them today, about the uh, the progress that that you've made both in in understanding some of the root causes and, and potentially the root fixes that that could address their financial challenges, um, how do you think that they would feel in terms of uh, the kind of, the promise of that American dream? do you think that they would see these experiments as an important um, uh, step in the right direction to, to deal with some of the challenges they resolve? Do you think that um, there would be continued reluctance in terms of what they've seen their economy give or not give them? Uh, how do you make sure that the work that you continue to do um, from, you know, incredible purchases like the Amidiar Network or the Aspen Institute, uh, how do you make sure that it continues to, to speak to the heart uh, and minds of those 235 families that you tracked?
1: yeah the the main thing is to keep talking to people and making sure that all the work is, is in fact grounded in what they what people themselves think that they need and would benefit from and so um I'm really grateful to be able to keep doing that and the in the work we've talked about so far, we've spent a lot of time with workers this year saying, If this existed, how would it help you And so Commonwealth has been leading that part of the research that we've done. And, and I've been lucky to be with them or hear them report about different interviews with people. And we say, well, what, how would you feel if there was this cash available, this fund available that you could go to in a time of emergency? And people respond with so much gratitude. Um, One woman started crying, you know, she said, if, if that existed, it would just be amazing. If that were actually a thing, it would be life-changing for me. And i I also think about it in the context of this now Rolodex of u s financial diaries family that i that I have rattling around in my brain, and one woman who made a really big impression on me, we called Sarah Johnson in the in the book and she when we asked her um what are your what's your biggest financial goal? which is a question we asked everybody We said, What's your main financial goal? She said, I just want to be able to pay all my bills on time.' But when you actually hear her life story, you realize that, that that's not her actual goal. This is a woman who was working part-time so that she could go to college part-time. During, right after our study ended, she graduated from college at the age of 40, having already raised two teenagers and having a young child at home. So this is somebody who got pregnant early in life and struggled through a whole series of low-wage jobs and had now taken on a huge amount of student debt in order to be able to go to college so that she could work. Um, she wanted to be a counselor. And she was anticipating that it was gonna take so long to pay off her student loans, but it wasn't gonna be an immediate financial gain the second she graduated college, but she, it was worth it, right? She was gonna do work that she felt was meaningful and eventually be able to have more financial security. And she and her husband had figured out how to buy a home. And so like she was actually really underselling her financial goals when she said, I just want to be able to pay her bills on time. In fact, she was working really hard to march towards a better life for herself and her family. And, um, And the reason I tell that story or the reason it stuck with me is that it is fundamentally a story about like how the near-term stuff that I can't pay my bills, that's what's top of mind. Like that's what she's thinking about when she goes to bed at night. And that's what's causing her worry when she wakes up. Um, And that's really like a painful overhang as she marches towards this bigger dream. And um, we really have to help people figure out how to, have how to diminish that, that like near-term overhang that gets in the way of, of the American dream. Um, the last time I had spoken with her, she had so much amazing news to report. You know, she had, um, as I said, graduated from college. Her son was doing great in college. She, um, had been elected to local, um, political office. I think it was the school board. She had, like she was really achieving a lot of success in her life but she had also just had to declare bankruptcy because of medical debt she simply couldn't pay and like we need to help people get out of that dichotomy
0: yeah and and, and the,
1: you know she was doing a good job with it but it's hard
0: yeah it it is incredibly hard and i i think for for every one of us that feels you know, whether they, they come from a position of privilege um, because of resources or the lottery of birth, um, or or they feel that, you know, they, that they're down on their luck and they feel like they're they're that their economy isn't working for them. Maybe their their government isn't working for them. It is quite um, actually moving and inspiring to hear um, so many individuals try and, and run these different types of, of policy experiments and make clear that more and more uh, American uh you know, institutions, whether you're private or public, need to start participating and paying attention to these uh, different plays that can help a lot of American families. And and that is in no small part due to the the work that you've done and the research that you've been able to contribute to that ongoing struggle. And um, I appreciate both the candor as well as um, a lot of the, the work that continues to happen in 2019, and look forward to how you continue to shape that conversation. Thanks so much for joining the pod, Rachel.
1: Well, thank you so much, and thanks for those kind words. I certainly appreciate them, and I'll uh, you and I and everyone will each all keep trying to do our part. So thank you. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM, and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of this show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast
0: without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening.